Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Michael Abrashoff. In 1997, he took command of the USS Benfold, one of the poorest performing ships in the U.S. Navy at the time. In a few short years, under his leadership, it became one of the best performing ships in the fleet. He wrote a book about his experience titled, It's Your Ship, Management Techniques from the Best Damn Ship in the Navy, and it's gone on to become a bestseller. In this episode, Mike talks about the leadership principles he relied on to transform the USS Benfold and how we can use those same principles to improve our own leadership skills. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Michael Abrashoff. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Mike, welcome to The Good Life. Sean, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, you had a long and distinguished career in the Navy. You graduated from the Naval Academy. You had various assignments as a junior officer, and then you spent time at the Pentagon in the 90s working for Defense Secretary William Perry. You call him the finest leader you ever worked for, and I hope we get into that a little bit. But in 1997, you took over command of a ship, the USS Benfold, and then you wrote a book about your experience. And I love the book. It's called It's Your Ship. Management Techniques from the Best Damn Ship in the Navy, which has gone on to become a bestseller and just a classic leadership book. So I'd like to start with your assignment in 1997 to take command of the USS Benfold, one of the poorest performing ships in the Navy at the time. What was the situation and what was going through your mind? What was going through my mind was sheer terror. The quarter before I took command of the ship, our retention rate was 8% meaning we were retaining 8% of the sailors eligible to re-enlist. We had one of the highest accident rates of any ship in the Navy and some of the poorest performance metrics. And I'm thinking, I'm not smart enough to turn this around. I graduated in the top 80% of my class at the Naval Academy. And at the beginning, I felt like I was a victim because I don't get to choose the people I work with and I don't get to choose our missions and I can't go back and ask for more money to get the job done. And the biggest event of my life happened the day I took command. And in the Navy, when there's a change of command ceremony, it's a big deal. Work stops a month prior, crew paints the ship from top to bottom. The Admiral comes and gives a long-winded speech about how great the outgoing guy is. And at the end of the ceremony, as my predecessor was leaving the ship for the final time with his parents and his wife and his kids, and as his departure was announced on the public address system, My new crew stood and cheered at the fact that he was leaving. And to my knowledge, that had never happened before in any ship in the history of the Navy. And the first thought that went through my mind was, what do I have to do to keep that from happening to me two years from now when I leave this ship? And the second thought that went through my mind was, you know what? I'm not here to be liked anyway. It's probably never going to happen. But what I am here for is to keep these young men and women safe. Because what drove me was, not my next promotion. It was never having to write the parents of any of my sailors, telling them that their sons or daughters weren't coming home because we didn't give it our best. And in that moment, I realized in this day and age, 
You can't order excellence sitting in the captain's chair. If you're going to be the leader in your industry, you've got to figure out a way to engage your people so that they take just as much ownership of the business as we have for it. And that's what drove me every day was how to engage the crew to get them to take ownership and have them help me drive results. There's so much there. I want to just talk for a moment about that idea of wanting to be liked. And I think that it's a goal that many young leaders put ahead of maybe others in a naive way, that maybe to be a good leader is to be liked. And I think you're spot on to say that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is to achieve the mission, to achieve safety, these other goals. And if you're a good leader, you will be respected eventually. There's a difference between being liked and being respected. I would rather be respected than be liked. So the key was, how do you drive performance? And you do that when you respect your people and they respect you back. That's the foundation of a great relationship. The other thing you just mentioned was the question that came into your mind was, how do I create some ownership for these young men and women, these sailors? And that's something that you go into in great detail in the book. You came up with a mantra, it's your ship, right? That kept coming up. Can you talk a bit about your journey to create ownership, how that happened? I like remembering names and faces and a little bit about people. And I'm thrown into a crew of 310. So at the beginning, I started to put index cards together with people's pictures on it and their jobs. Then I decided, why don't I just interview them? So it had never been done before in the Navy. I interviewed every sailor on the ship individually, all 310 of them. I got to know their names, their spouses' names, their children's names, their hometowns. And in these interviews, once I realized how smart they were, I challenged them to come to work every day and that they could challenge every process, every procedure, every custom, every tradition. And if they had an idea how to improve a process, 1%, I wanted to hear from them. And what I said to them was, if we're 1% better today than we are yesterday, and 1% better tomorrow than we are today, nobody is going to touch us. We will become the leader in our industry. And it's just improving a little bit each and every day. And a lot of times people you know, have these big, hairy, audacious goals. That's well and good. But the way you get there is through constant measured improvement. And when a sailor had a great idea, I'd say, hey, it's your ship, you know, run with it. And once they started realizing it was their ship, that's when we started getting the great performance. I love that idea. One thing that you're doing there that speaks volumes is just listening and showing respect. You know, you talked about gaining respect as a leader, but one of the first things you did was show respect to each and every individual on the ship by just sitting down and listening. There's a lot of power in that. It's amazing that we don't take the time to do that. And shortly after I got out of the Navy, I got asked to speak at a small bank in Chicago. Had 100 employees. And before I got up to speak, the president of the bank asked every employee to stand up and tell everybody else in the room something that they're most proud of in their lives that nobody in the room knows about. And they get to the cleaning lady, and I could see the apprehension on the bank president's face. He had no idea what she was going to say. And very confidently, she stood up and said, my son graduated from the University of Chicago Law School this weekend. And she said, I've come to work at this bank every day for 30 years so that he could have a better life than what I had. And you could have heard a pin drop to everybody else. She was the cleaning lady. 
But in my own way, in these interviews, I tried to find out what my sailors were most proud of in their lives. And then I could use that to connect with them and engage them and make them seem like I care about them. And if your people think you care about them, they will follow you into battle. Wow, that story just sent chills down my back. It reminds me of something else you wrote about in the book, which was a duty that leaders have to others and to furthering community or society and helping others that maybe are less fortunate than ourselves. You talked about coming from a a family of two parents and a lot of love and support. And many of the sailors on your ship didn't come from that background. And you talked about giving back. Well, out of the blue, I zillowed my childhood home that my mother lived in for 86 years. And the Zillow value of my childhood home today is $79,000. But we didn't know we were poor and we didn't feel like we were missing anything. And in today's hectic work environment and the demands on people and the financial pressure and stresses, a lot of times things fall by the wayside. And it's that time with your family being there, helping them grow, helping them and mentor them and coach them and whatnot, things that you only get one shot at in life. And so what we tried to do was to recognize, you know, the parents who had kids, I gave them an afternoon off to go to PTA conferences. So we knew what was going on. We knew what the school schedule was. And we tried to gear our work schedule so that people could be home, you know, for those big family events. And sometimes, let's face it, especially right now with the COVID crisis going on in the economy the way it is, we're under tremendous stress and pressure. And I think that if we just take a step back and realize what the important things are in life and connect with them, that we'll get a lot more satisfaction, as will our families and children and the people that we work with. Absolutely. And you had mentioned that the USS Benfold had a high turnover rate when you arrived. And another fact that you mentioned in the book is that the Navy already knew that one of the big reasons people left is they just didn't feel listened to. They didn't feel heard. So I'm guessing that that had an impact on your turnover as well. What's interesting is everybody at the time said, oh, they're leaving because we can't pay them enough. So I did exit surveys to confirm that pay was the number one reason why our people were leaving. And yeah, pay is important, but it was number five on the list of reasons why people were leaving. And number one was they didn't feel like they were being treated with respect and dignity in the workplace. Number two, they didn't feel like they were being listened to. Number three, they didn't feel like they were getting the training they needed to do the job. And number four, they didn't feel like they were being groomed for increased positions of responsibility. And so instead of feeling sorry for myself that I can't increase their pay, instead I focused on the top four issues. And we go from having one of the worst retention rates almost having a 100% retention rate my last year in command. If you think about how much money and effort you spend recruiting new people and training them, and then if they leave you, that's wasted resources down the drain that you'll never get back. And what I wanted to do was to retain the people that we already had instead of losing them and then having to go back and start from scratch again when we get new people reports. That's a great story. And you mentioned at the very beginning that you know one thing about the Navy is you didn't have an unlimited budget. You couldn't go back to the Pentagon and ask for more money for bonuses to keep your people happy. So 
you found a way that addressed the issue, but also addressed the right issue. You didn't just go with the assumption that, oh, it must be pay. You took the time to find out what was really going on. And it turns out that there was a solution there that is really just being more human and more respectful to others that didn't cost a lot of money that had a huge results. Well, and the other thing I did was to get advanced in the Navy as an enlisted person, you have to take a standardized exam against everybody else in your occupation in the entire Navy. And all things being equal, we have roughly 300 ships, same random assignment of people, same operating procedures. The promotion opportunity across all 300 ships should be roughly the same. But ours wasn't. Ours was two-thirds of what the Navy's promotion rate was, which meant we had a problem with training and getting people prepared to take the advancement exams. So in the interviews, I reviewed what their scores were from the previous exam and the areas that they were weak. And then for each sailor, we could do targeted training to make sure that we could get them up to speed in the areas that they were weak in so that they could take those exams and pass them. And so my last year in command, our motion opportunity went from 68% of the Navy average to 252% of the Navy average. And it was because we took an interest in every sailor where their weaknesses were, coached them and trained them so that they could overcome those obstacles on the standardized exams. And they knew the effort that we put in to help them get promoted. But at the end of the day, they earned those promotions on their own. They weren't handed anything. And when you earn something on your own, you take tremendous pride in yourself and your self-esteem rises and you're happier at work. Yeah, that really gets that innate desire to improve and to get better. You talked about getting 1% better every day or even every week. And we talk about compounding a lot on this show as value investors and thinking about financial compounding, but also the compounding of learning, just learning and getting better, a little bit better every day. So I love that concept and the fact that you led with that idea of just not making huge changes overnight, but just getting a little bit better. And then you put it on the the sailors to come up, if they had ideas, you wanted to hear them. So that was, I would say that's a little risky or many leaders will feel it's risky and they don't want to go there because they feel a little bit out of control. People might do things that could lead to mistakes and especially in an environment like the Navy where there's a lot of rigidity and command and control. Was there a little trepidation there? How did that play out? Well, of course, I was uneasy at first because I was going someplace we had never been before. And I was always anxious to make sure I wasn't creating anarchy because at the end of the day, a military unit has to be disciplined to execute when I give an order to shoot, for example. But I found that the more control I gave up, the greater command I got over the ship and discipline improved so that when I did give a direct order, people swung into action because they knew, you know, I was serious about it. So the way I think you get to increase discipline is when people feel like they have a stake in the outcome and that they're being listened to. And in the interviews, I asked three questions. What do you like most about this ship? What do you like least? And what would you change if you were the captain? And rule number one is you can't change the captain. Rule number two is we can't change the rest of the Navy. And rule number three was be responsible. I don't have any extra money in the budget. If you're going to give me an idea, we have to have the ability to implement it. 
And so by setting the groundwork for asking your people for ideas, they realize they have to be responsible as well. And they can't give you pie in the sky ideas that are going to cost a billion dollars to implement because it's never going to happen. But if you just get that incremental improvement and you can find cost savings along the way, bit by bit, and saving money was never one of my goals. Living within our budget was. But because the crews were better trained and took better ownership of their equipment, my last year in command, we operated our ship on 75% of our operating budget, saving millions of dollars. And it wasn't even one of the goals. It was to operate smarter and leaner operations came as a result. So did you have additional financial resources because you were saving money to maybe make some investments here and there in people or other parts of the ship? Exactly. I had enormous flexibility at that point to spend in targeted areas that I felt could do the most good because we were saving so much in other areas. One of the areas that really surprised me, but in hindsight, it's genius, is you sent some of your chefs to culinary school. So the day after I take command of the ship, I bring my parents on board and they're, they're in their 70s for lunch in the captain's cabin. Worst food I've ever had in my life. How you can ruin chicken nuggets is beyond me, but our cooks managed to do it. And I was embarrassed in front of my parents. And then it hit me, gee, if this is what the captain and his guests are getting fed, what are we feeding the crew? So I had lunch on the mess decks with the sailors. The captain never eats there. And I found out that the food we were serving them was worse than what we were serving me. And so I started pulling the string, why? Well, Nobody joins the military to be a cook, yet we have, the recruiters have quotas to fill. And if you walk into a recruiting station on the 30th of the month, you know, when it's quota day, and you could have a 180 IQ, but if they need a cook that day, you're going to be a cook. So we put non-volunteers into the job to begin with. We don't give them any training. The rest of the crew demeans them and abuses them. And so there's absolutely no pride among the cooks. So I took a hit to the budget and I sent half my cooks to culinary school for two weeks. It was a huge deal. Get them off the ship, go to San Francisco, learn how to cook better. We changed vendors. There's nothing in the rules that says I have to use the same vendor. And I decided to get a different vendor that would service better quality food. Every day I would walk through the galley talking to cooks and thanking them. And at the same time, looking for standards like cleanliness and whatnot so that we don't get foodborne illnesses. And I put meal evaluations out on the food line for sailors to give me feedback on what they liked about the meal, what they didn't, but tell me what you want to see and how we're going to do it if you want to improve. And within six months, we're serving gourmet quality food on the ship, whereas previously we were serving the worst food I'd ever had in my life. And the reputation for great food got out on the San Diego waterfront and sailors off other ships would come to our ship for lunch because the quality of food was so good. All for the same amount of money we were serving lousy food. I think that's just a great example of making an investment in an area where you just got a huge return. And it's also non-conventional, not an area that people would think about. And the other thing about leading with this idea of it's your ship and I want to hear your ideas and getting 1% better, it's also a mindset shift. And I'm guessing you have to be a little bit humble or put your ego away because you had this mantra, there is always a better way to do things. And so even if you thought 
you were already doing it the best way, or you had an idea, you didn't necessarily go with your own idea. You also went with others because you had this mindset that there's always a better way. So I had the great honor of being selected to be the military assistant to the Secretary of Defense. His name was William Perry, and I was his number two assistant. And he's my role model for leadership because he led with a sense of humility. And I would come to call his leadership style excellence without arrogance. And so I learned it from him to have that sense of humility that maybe their way is different than the way I would do it. But if it's going to get us there, I'm going to let go and I'm going to let them do it their way. And sometimes I was surprised their way was better than the way I would have prescribed. And other times it may not have been, but they learned along the way. And when they were done, I'd say, okay, what'd you learn? And what would you do differently next time if you have to do this again? So instead of telling them what their shortcomings were, I let them self-evaluate and they tell me what their shortcomings were. And then they knew how to do it better the next time. That's great. It reminds me of, of Jeff Bezos. He talks about this idea of disagree and commit, where if an idea comes up in an executive meeting and he disagrees or the executive team disagrees, they don't necessarily shoot it down. If they feel there's enough passion and enough ownership of the outcome and enough belief that this idea could really play out, they will play the card they call disagree and commit and say, well, it's probably not the way I do it, but I'm going to say, go ahead and do it and I'll support you. And it's led to some incredible innovations. But if Jeff Bezos had telegraphed what the outcome he wanted in advance or the path he wanted to take to get to the outcome, they would have steered their thinking to his way of what path he wanted to take. And again, this is what I learned from William Perry in briefings. He never once led on which way he was leaning and making decisions. And he would let the briefer, you know, do the briefing. And then the briefer would give four options as to which path to take. And when the briefer was done, William Perry said, let me see if I understand all the relevant points that you were trying to get across. And if he missed something, that gave the briefer the opportunity to fill in a gap that William Perry didn't get. And then two, William Perry said, let me summarize the four options you've given me. And the briefer had the ability to say, you know, you're wrong on this one option. But then once everything was out and the positions were well known, we, only then would William Perry make his decision. But a lot of times, if they think you're leaning towards one scenario, they will slant their brief and try to make the stats work to what you're thinking. And, and I have a feeling Jeff Bezos doesn't do that, but instead lets them chart the course. And that's why he's so successful. Another thing, a reason why Jeff Bezos is so successful, he must have read It's Your Ship. Because when I took command in 97, I found that my people were spending entire days in and out of meetings. And they didn't have time to get their work done. And I declared Wednesdays, no meeting Wednesdays. That it was your day to get what your priorities were. I'm not going to schedule any meetings. You do what you want. And I think in the last couple of years, Bezos has implemented the same thing that on certain days of the week, there are no meetings and it gives people a chance to work on their priorities instead of spending their entire days in Zoom calls. I love that idea. I think we need more of that. And the other thing you mentioned about William Perry was his time management. He always started a meeting on time and ended it on time. 
And I think you mentioned something like you never saw him leave a meeting and say, we need to have another meeting about this. Is that right? He hated meetings that had no definitive outcomes because to him, it was a waste of his time. And so it was a clear expectation that there would be a resolution at the end of the meeting. And that's what you had to drive for is, is to present facts that would give you a resolution. And part of my job was to keep track of exactly how he spent his day down to the minute. And I would put it on a pie chart. And on Friday before he went home, he would look at this pie chart of where he spent his time during the week. Because sometimes you can get wrapped up over a, an issue that may be a $100 issue when you have $100 million issues hanging out over here that you're not spending time on. So it allowed him to focus so that he could rebalance for the next week if he got sidetracked on something that, that didn't provide the value that he should be spending his time on. What else did you learn from William Perry that you applied to your experience leading the USS Benfold? Well, he's the one who taught me the 1%, improve 1% a day. And so between me and the secretary is the senior military assistant, typically a three-star. And my job was to push paper. I, I wasn't in a leadership position. I was a paper pusher. And every day, a four-foot stack of paper would come into SecDev's office. And my job was to get it down to eight or nine inches of stuff that I thought was important for SecDev to see. And I would highlight it. And I would take this eight or nine inches of stuff and put it in the general's in-basket. And from my desk, I could watch the general work. And at the beginning, he threw 90% of what I thought was important in the burn bag for destruction. And he never gave me any feedback as to why he didn't think it was important. Because SecDef's office, as you might imagine, is pretty stress-filled. It's an intense work environment. And he just didn't have time to give me feedback. And so one day I decided, you know what, I'm going to get my own feedback. At 8.30 every night when he went home from work, I'd go into his office, take his burn bag, dump all the material out onto his desk, and I'd compare everything of mine that he sent on to the secretary with what he tossed. And what I wanted to do was to start thinking like the three-star. And so by training myself to find out what was important to my boss, I got the eight or nine inches of paper down to maybe one or two inches. And I'd sit there and I'd watch him rubber stamp it and he'd send it right on to the secretary. And I'm feeling better about myself. My self-esteem is going up. And I remember thinking, I'm going to continue to play the game. Before the general ever made a decision, I would try to anticipate what that decision was going to be. And if he made the same decision that I made, it was, gee, I can think like a three-star. If he made a different decision, it meant there was a gap in my training I needed to go fill. And what this enabled me to do was to start thinking like the boss and anticipate what needed to be done before he ever knew he needed it. And I could be there with a solution. And he started to trust me. He put me in charge of the SecDef communications team, the trip planning team, the security detail. I had 45 people reporting to me. I'm 34 years old in SecDef's office. I have 45 people reporting to me in what historically was an individual contributor's job. And you know what? The general never gave me any feedback. I got it from his wife. She came in one day, came back to my desk and said, I want to thank you for everything you're doing for Paul, because for the first time since he's had this job, he comes home at night happy. And that's what leadership can get you, is people lifting burdens off your shoulders so that you can go home at night happy. I really like that lesson of whatever role you're in, think like 
the role that's above you. Think like your boss. Put yourself in your boss's shoes. Try to anticipate decisions. Try to determine what they're thinking about and what information they need to be successful. And you're already making a step towards your next promotion. Absolutely. You talk about thinking like a boss. You also talk about acting like a leader. And when you act like a leader, you mentioned the book that you lead by example. Can you give some examples of that, how you led by example at USS Benfold? So in addition to being one of the worst performers, it was also one of the dirtiest ships. And there's no such thing as a good, dirty ship in the US Navy. And so when I would walk down the passageway, if I saw trash on the deck, I'd bend over and pick it up. And I guarantee you, no captain in the Navy ever picks up trash. But if I walk past something that's not right and make no effort to fix it, that means I approve of it. And so I knew people were watching me. And so when they saw me picking up trash, they became embarrassed that the trash was there to begin with. So they stopped putting it there. And they started taking greater pride in their work environment and in themselves. And that all led to greater performance. You also tell a story about eating last. And that reminded me of servant leadership, you know, serving those who serve you. Where did that idea come from? And was that hard to do at first? So I learned it from my three-star in the Pentagon that whenever we were out in the field visiting troops, he always ate last. And one day I said to him, you know, General, what's up with this? And the Navy officers go to the head of the line. He said, Commander, in the Army, officers eat last. That way, if we run out of food, it's the officers who go without, not the people on the front line. And I started thinking, what a simple but powerful signal, letting your people eat first, and you go to the end of the line. So I never cut to the head of the line, although I could have, but my officers watched me go to the end of the line. And pretty soon they were going to the end of the line just ahead of me. And it's about having the humility to know that you may not generate every great idea. And that if you're intellectually curious, you can pick up great ideas from others. And this was a great idea I picked up from my army general. Another theme you talk about in the book is this idea of integrity. And we talk about that on The Good Life here. One of the quotes that we like from Warren Buffett is, reputation, it takes 20 years to build it, but you can lose it in five minutes. Integrity became a pillar to your leadership at the USS Benfold. Here's a quote from you. You said, you can never go wrong if you do the right thing. Can you talk a little bit about that and how integrity played a role in turning that ship around? The other saying I had was, if what you're doing appeared on the front page of the Washington Post tomorrow, would you be proud or embarrassed? And if you're proud, I don't care what the regulations say, we can do it. If you're embarrassed, don't do it or bring me involved so I can make the final decision. Nobody ever gets fired for doing the right thing. If your intentions are good and you're striving to be the best and you come up a little bit short, I'm not going to fire you. But if you're involved in lying or covering something up that may not make you look good or you know, financial mismanagement, those are things I can get fired for. And so you better not be participating in them as well. So for me, it's understanding what's right and what's wrong, and then driving the whole organization to have that same mindset that we don't lie, cheat, or steal. We come to work with integrity. We may come up short once in a while, but that's the goal each and every day. And so people look for that because if they see you taking shortcuts, 
it gives them the okay for them to take shortcuts as well. And that's when you create anarchy, when your people think they can do things without your approval or your permission, because you're demonstrating to them that you're doing it to your chain of command. I love that story. I just want to reinforce that integrity starts at the top of the organization and people will look at every move of a leader. And if they sense a lack of integrity, it opens up all kinds of potential gaps or gray areas that people will squeeze into. You also talk about this principle, which really struck me. And it's, I find it sometimes hard for myself as you know, just leading my organization or leading in my community. And the principle is that you try to always look at yourself or point at yourself first if there was a problem and ask yourself, what was potentially my role in this challenge? So you looked inward first. Can you talk about that? My last day working for William Perry brings me into his office, sits me down and says, no matter how hard you try, your ship is never going to be perfect. He said, you're going to have disappointments every day. And he said, whenever you're disappointed in an outcome, I want you to remember one thing. Assume your crew wanted to do a great job. And if you don't get the results you're looking for, don't blame them first, but instead look inward and ask yourself what you could have done differently. Did you clearly communicate the goals? Did you give them the training necessary to be successful? Did you give them the time and the resources to do a great job? But most importantly, did the process support them delivering the results you were looking for? And that's what William Perry, some of the last advice that he gave me. And so whenever something didn't work out, I assumed my sailors wanted to do a great job and I would look inward to see what I could have done differently to have generated a better outcome. Wow, what a powerful message. And to do that, did you have to find a quiet space? Did you journal? You know, because sometimes I see leaders just reacting and something's wrong and immediately they're just reacting, they're jumping on people, they're blaming others, they're blaming, you know, trends outside of the organization or whatnot. And it's sometimes hard to find the space to, because you're going to need a little time to reflect to have that conversation. One of the perks of being the captain is that each bridge wing of the ship, I have my own chair. And that was my quiet time. I watched every sunset on that ship and every sunrise. And that was my quiet time to reflect on where we're going and what I need to prepare myself for. And so if you're constantly running from meeting to meeting, You may think you're busy and getting stuff done, but if you don't have that time for reflection about where you've been and where you need to go and how you're going to get there, you may not have the discipline necessary to anticipate what the future looks like. And then how do you chart a course to get your organization to meet that future? I think that time is so important. And I think it's hard nowadays with our phones and with the distractions that we have to create that space and have the time to think and reflect and just get ready for the day to operate in a way that's in accordance with your values and it's in accordance with the way that you want to be a leader. Yeah, a lot of times we think activity is progress. A lot of times activity is just, you know, flailing about. And are you really, is that your $1,000 an hour work or are you doing $10 an hour work? So when I sit there and reflect, it's how can I do $1,000 an hour work and not get wrapped up and distracted by $10 an hour work. You know, another principle that you talk about in the book is this idea of seeing things through the eyes of the crew. 
Where did that come from and how did that play out in the USS Benfold? So I was walking around the ship one day and a sailor came up to me and says, you know, Captain, we have a term to describe the organization on this ship. He said, this ship is like a tree full of monkeys. He said, you're in the monkey at the top of the tree. On every branch, there's different levels of monkeys and we're the monkeys in the bottom branch. He said, when you look down from the top of the tree, all you ever see are smiling faces coming back at you. When we look up from the bottom branch, we have an entirely different view of the organization. And so that's when it hit me. I've got a diverse workforce. It was the first ship built from the keel up to accommodate both men and women. And it's totally diverse. And each group speaks a different language. And it was then I had to put myself in each group on the ship and view through their eyes what I was trying to do. And I realized I needed to up my game in communicating to them in their language where we're going, why it's important, and why it's in their own best interest. And so I could only do that when I put myself in their shoes and viewed the operation through their eyes. Did you change how communication flowed through the ship? So I had a public address microphone right at my desk. And if I got a great idea from one of the interviews, on the spot, I would hit the button and I would say, Benfold, this is the captain. This is the idea I just got. This is who I got it from. It makes sense to me. We're going to implement it right now. I want your full support. And it wasn't until after I left the ship that I find out that one of the nicknames the crew had for me was Mega Mike, because they said there wasn't a microphone I could not walk past without talking into. And that's what we as leaders do, especially in difficult times, is not retreat to our office, but to get out the megaphone and communicate what we need to do to stay safe in tough times. I love that story, Mega Mike. I bet cheers went up when some of those ideas got broadcast. It was more like stunned. They were more stunned. Like, what is happening here? Never seen or heard this before, right? It had never been done before. And I felt sorry for my officers because they had to react to the public address announcement. And I wanted to show the sailors that I heard their messages in these interviews. And if I had to take time out to get the officers together to tell them this is what we're going to do, it would have slowed down that momentum. So a lot of times the officers heard for the first time a change in policy when if I should have been militarily correct, it let them know about it first before the crew know about it. But I got the desired effect. You were in massive change mode at the time. And sometimes you just have to do things. And I was in a hurry. You know, I'm not going to wait two years to get something done. I want it done now. Another counterintuitive move you made was supporting this idea of fun. Because when I think about a captain on a ship, I don't think about someone who's that concerned about fun. But you did want to ensure that people had an enjoyable time on the ship, that they were having fun. It wasn't that things were out of control, but can you talk about that, the impact it had on morale? So I was talking to one of my former officers this last weekend, who is now a two-star. And I'll never forget what he told me was he couldn't wait to wake up in the morning and get to work because he enjoyed it so much. And so work does not have to be a four-letter word. How we structure it can be both hard work, but also some fun. 
We tried to sprinkle in fun to break up some of the monotony and the drudgery. It showed them that we cared, that we were making an effort. Like we had karaoke every other Friday night, first class event, steamship round, buffalo wings. And the rules on karaoke night was the captain was not authorized to sing. And there was no country music on my ship. And I'm not a country music fan, so I banned it on karaoke night. But, uh, you know, just stupid stuff that you can show your people that you want to create a great environment. And it has to be sincere. You know, smoking cigars on the flight deck every Thursday afternoon at the close of business. No matter what your rank was, you go out there and smoke a cigar and just bond and share stories with each other and try to create a family atmosphere. Doesn't cost a dime, but it shows that, you know, our people that we care about them. In closing, I'd like to go back to this idea of our collective experience today and experiencing COVID, a lot of uncertainty in our lives, a lot of uncertainty facing leaders. And I can only imagine that you dealt with uncertainty as a naval officer and your experience at the USS Benfold probably shaped how you think about sailing into uncharted waters. What can you tell leaders today as we try to navigate through COVID? Well. A ship like USS Benfold, when we're at sea, we typically are underway no more than 21 days continuously. And then we go into port for four or five days to recover because it's very intense, very arduous. And one time we were doing an operation required us to be 45 days at sea straight. And after about day 30, I was worn down and I was feeling down and wondering when it was ever going to end. And then I caught myself and said, gee, if I'm feeling this way, then my people have to be feeling this way as well. So I need to pull myself up, dust myself off, and be that role model to help us get through this. 2020 sucks. It is a lousy year all the way around, and there's no sugarcoating it. But if we let ourselves get down, we become complacent. And accidents can happen when you become complacent. You know, I've got friends who because they now have Zoom, they're doing 10 one-hour Zoom meetings a day, and they think they're making progress, when in reality, they're just wasting time. We need to focus on how to make the operation that we currently have as ruthlessly efficient so that people have the bandwidth to execute on the mission. And there's going to be uncertainty. You know, parents working from home and can't get childcare, and how do you educate your kids when they can't go to school? I mean, these are genuinely tough issues and there's no one size fits all. So we as leaders need to understand what each person is going through. No situation is alike. You know, you're going to have single people working for you that have no kids and they can, you know, work remotely from wherever. But if you've got kids, you've got additional challenges. And so as we as leaders need to understand that and factor that in to how we, you know, schedule our day and how we have the understanding of our people for what they're going through. But there's tremendous uncertainty. And we as leaders need to chart that course of where we need to be so that we can continue to control our own destiny. But if we let ourselves get down, then our people are going to get down as well. And leadership is what's going to get us through this. I really like that answer. It speaks to that servant leadership that you talked about at the USS Benfold and not eating first, eating last, and supporting the people who were trying to lead, seeing things through their eyes and helping them. 
get through this and not letting ourselves get down because we still have a long way to go. Mike, where can people find out more about what you're doing now, how you're helping organizations, how you're helping build leaders, and what you're writing about these days? So I've got a consulting group, apgleadership.com. Mike, this has just been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being on The Good Life. My pleasure, Sean. Good luck to you. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.